Hello, everybody. We have the first of four episodes at the Fort Worth Zoo. I'm going to space them out, probably put them out every other week. I've been a little bit uh, sporadic with some of my releases lately just because of the holidays, and I have been trying to finish a deadline. I'm contributing to a book that I'll be telling you all about in coming episodes, and doing a lot of different collaborations this year, one of which uh, Sophia Rockland has agreed to join for more Head Talks dates so we can do more of those shows, doing a bunch of shows in February, uh, about two weeks worth, kind of around the Bible Belt, and then doing um, stuff through the Midwest, heading um, from Minnesota over to the West Coast in May, and still doing stand-up science um, all of the time, much more regularly. Head Talks is um, kind of limited cities doing it, trying to book more and do it as much as possible, but um, uh, Sophia is uh, the, uh, the best guest for it, and it's been going really well with having it be a book signing with her as well, and then also getting other people in various areas to collaborate. So, I have her co-hosting a couple episodes, and I'm digging it so far. I'm also going to try experimenting with, uh, one, doing this a little bit more, having having comic friends and other people uh, sometimes co-host some shows. I think uh, three or four heads in the room is sometimes a nice change of pace and takes a lot of pressure off me and, and makes it fun. Uh, also trying to um, sometimes book multiple guests on an episode for those same reasons. And uh, I've been doing the podcast for five years now and been looking to mix it up a little bit. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, I will uh, keep on experimenting. I've been adding more people to the team recently to um, to collaborate more with universities and other groups and so yeah exciting times and speaking of collaborations I am still working with the great courses plus organization if you haven't checked out it's it's the main part of how I educate myself uh, recently and come up with all sorts of fun, interesting things to talk about on other people's podcasts. Like I was just on Duncan Trussell's amazing podcast, uh, one of my favorite podcasts to be a guest on. And I had a lot of people writing me because I mentioned a course that I had taken and, and in, in the course of making a few points um, about some of the subject matter we were talking about. We were talking about personality uh, differences, and I mentioned um, uh, that I had taken a course on personality from The Great Courses Plus, and I had a lot of people writing since then wondering what that course was, so maybe if you're new to the podcast or you haven't heard me talking about this one in particular before, it's one of my favorite courses that I've ever taken. I've taken a lot of online courses. It's uh, hu it's Human Personality, Why You Are Who You Are, Investigations into Human Personality. And so, yeah, I, I, I uh, really enjoyed that course, and I'm just starting a brand new course, if you're looking for suggestions, or maybe you already checked that one out, 
um, uh, redefining reality, the intellectual implications of modern science. And it's a really interesting look at things like free will and technology and exploring whether our actions are really a result of, of personal choice when we have things like computers and big data that can now predict what people will do in many situations. So if you start today, you'll be starting kind of right along with me. I think it's going to be a really cool course. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are today and you'll get an offer for the listeners to an all-access free trial to the entire library. Again, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are today and you can always go to the herewearepodcast.com website to get more information on people that I've partnered with, uh, including Michael Meditations, which I'll be doing another retreat October 2nd through 9th, now that I'm doing the Head Talks tour and have a good opportunity to promote um, going to Jamaica for more retreats. Um, so doing that as a fun offering for people. So those of you that missed out this time, there's still one more chance this year to do that. And um, as well as there's, uh, I would just really like encourage you guys to check out the list of cities that I have coming up this year. I'm booked out. I'm still working on putting together a lot of March dates, but I have most of the half, at least through June, kind of mapped out, and so you can check that out. I'm about to, as we're talking, make my way to Florida. going to be spending a little time in Jamaica, and then after that, back in Florida, doing stand-up science in Sarasota, Tampa, um, Coral Gables, Florida, before starting Head Talks up again in Savannah, Charleston, Asheville, Char Charlotte, and then there's some places like Asheville and Nashville that I'm doing both Head Talks and Stand Up Science. I'm gonna, uh, I'm trying to put together a new version of Stand Up Science called Mating Season, um, which is just a mating version of Stand Up Science, and trying to debut that in Nashville on Valentine's Day of this year, and uh, I thought it might be a what nice way of kind of differentiating some of the things that I do and, and getting more people. I, I thought it'd be a fun date night show and maybe get, get some people in that don't necessarily know that they would be into the kind of subject matter that we talk about on this podcast and having dating and mating behavior kind of being a fun gateway into the world of science. So like I said, doing a lot of uh, new projects and exper experimentation this year that I'm really excited about. But uh, anyway, Charlotte, Athens, Atlanta, Chattanooga, uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas also coming up for February. Uh, one more date being added really soon um, in, as you can see, I have so much to keep track of that I can't even keep it all straight, but Fort Smith being added soon and doing uh, Oklahoma City again, going through Austin with both the return of Head Talks and Stand Up Science there, um, both Head Talks and Stand Up Science, which I did in Austin recently, 
both sold out at the Spider Room, one of my favorite new venues in the country. Super cool vibe. And then heading, making my way west to California, heading through Glendale, Arizona, maybe finding some other stuff on the way, then a big California tour, and then starting up in May, starting in the Midwest uh, and heading west. And there's a lot more dates as well as we, we put um, we put in some cities that have yet to be um, completely confirmed, but we, we are in talks with just so you guys can get a better sense of how some of the routing is going to be. Um, and even even looking into booking August, so um, it, around California. So uh, it's going to be a busy year. Things have been going well, and I hope all of you guys are having a great start to your year, and I'll talk with you on the back end of this first zoo episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm having a fantastic day today. Me and my special guest co-host for the day, anthropologist Sophia Rockland. Hello, hello. We just had a, what did we do today, Sophia? I am saturated with information. We spent the day at Fort Worth Zoo, and we've had an amazing behind-the-scenes look at the ecology of the zoo staff and nutritionists and everything. I just, it was the, it's been the most amazing day of my life. <laughs> Boring. Um, all right. <laughs> we even hung out with some creatures. It's been amazing. It has been a wonderful day, um, and we are so excited, guys. We are going to have uh, we're going to have a bunch of fun episodes coming up for you, and this is the very first episode at the Fort Worth Zoo, named listed uh, regularly listed in the top five zoos in the U.S. And today we are interviewing Adam Ruppert, who is a staff nutritionist here, and Ann Ward, who is the Director of Nutrition. Thank you, Ann and Adam, for joining us. Thank you. So, uh, we just got a whole tour, um, and it, it just... It, pretend none of that just happened and <laughs> the listeners weren't there and it, all of it was so fascinating Sophia and I were both wildly writing down the notes we have so much to talk about but before we get into our questions why don't you guys give just a little bit of a overview a little introduction into what it's like um, being a nutritionist at the zoo what that job entails and uh, yeah I'll I have to say, for me, I, I, it's like I'm still in grad school, so I'm still learning stuff every day because there's so much that we don't know, um, so I find it very challenging and exciting. I mean, every day is different. Um, the animals are changing every day. I mean, it's hard to believe. Some people say, well, why do you have more than one diet? Well, we had 1,847 diet changes this year. People, wow. people say, why do you have more than one diet? Yeah, they're like, you make a diet for an animal and then it has the same diet for oh, the rest of its I, life. You I know? See. So they're like, well, you know, what do you guys really do when they don't understand? I thought there's people out there that thought 
all animals just like there's just one bag that says zoo food (laughs) (laughs) and that's what you feed them but that is that is actually very interesting why why are these uh diets in say a given species changing so frequently animals are growing reproducing lactating Um, Animals are shifting exhibits, shifting to different zoos, and then it's our responsibility to keep up on the science that's coming out. So as more information comes out on how we can better feed these animals, you know, then it's our job to apply it. So we just got the tour and the first thing that we saw was a big, uh, a huge kitchen. I never worked in a restaurant or anything, but it was a big industrial uh, kitchen. And and, uh, does it work the same way that a restaurant would is there are you like the master chef and then are there like line chefs and someone's job is just to slice the carrots and the sauce and chef. and uh, and someone and you kind of oversee the the main recipe how how what's the dynamic how does all that work uh so the staff we have um, preparing the diets each day um they there's not sort of a top-down hierarchy there would be like in a kitchen where someone's barking orders all day but it um each our staff uh have rotating schedules so they they get it to uh, i don't know there's 10 to 20 different tasks that they would rotate through throughout the week um and so they would have a number of tasks each day that make up a full day's worth of work they're mostly working independently so that then they'll be at different stations depending on what their task is uh, so once they're fully trained they're they're all sort of um you know uh different cogs in the wheel that that all come together to make all the diets finish at the end of the day so they uh, and they're working side by side but some some of the diets are the sets will overlap with each other so they'll help each other out um, but mostly they're, they're it's designed to be independent ta- independent tasks mostly so that they can work um, and 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 we can kind of move things around if we need to so it's, it's not wholly dependent on other people but they uh, we Ann and I are designing the diets at the top so that there is there is some structure in terms of how how they get to where they what they're doing. We design the diets, um, formulate them based on the needs of the animal, and then we um, to implement those diets. We have a label system, which is a, a very uh, fancy Excel program that we put things into, and it spits things out based on um, the animals uh, what what it is, its name, its delivery location, the day of the week, the amount of the food item. We weigh everything out by weight so that it's as accurate as it can be. And then those the keepers, we call them keepers, our staff, they'll uh, print those labels out every day. And then they have a set of labels per task and they will just proceed with implementing or filling those diets. Mm-hmm. And how many animals are you feeding again? I think we're About? feeding a collection of over 6,000 animals. Um, and the individual packages that are coming out of the building is over 800. And so some of those 800 little pieces come together to make one diet. So it's not like we're making 800 diets every day, Mm -hmm. but they're doing 800 things have to come together. Um, And they're extremely efficient down there. So they have their categories of, you know, somebody's doing all the meat diets, somebody's doing all the fish diets, somebody's doing all the dry diets, and then they come together. And then even within that, the manager down there has stuff organized. So if some diets are chopped and some diets are whole food, you know, the same person as all the chopped diets, the same person as all the whole food. So, you know, you're not stopping and having to chop, you know, every time you make a diet. So it's really kind of a pretty tight process down there that has to be very efficient to make that number of items. How much does it cost to feed 7,000 uh, critters in a zoo? The funds for food alone in our budget is a little over $980,000. 
So almost About a million dollars. Almost a million dollars. That's that's not including the the staff or any. That's, that's correct. Just the food. That's just the food. Wow. And now, I'm curious. What are because you guys don't have koala bears? Do not you? anymore. And not anymore because they're. Uh, was it a, they're a big pain in the butt to feed? Is that why? Because I, I did a, I did a Sydney Zoo tour, and, and I'm, I doubt I'm recalling this correctly, but it was something like they're, they're saying there's like some 20,000 species of eucalyptus. They can only eat this, but there's only like 20, 20 species of the eucalyptus that the koala bears will eat because they're such finicky eaters. And they just want to eat the tender top leaves. Yeah. Not the whole branch. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> so no koala bears at this. That makes your job easier anyway. But what is, what's the finickiest thing that you got here? What's the biggest pain in the butt to feed? Oh, geez. Uh, it kind of changes. They all kind of take turns. Um, it kind of your... depends on their status, too. So if we have a sick animal, they can be picky. Mm. Wow. We had a, a goose, a Hawaiian goose. This this one was one of my cases last year. Uh, it came into quarantine from a, I don't remember what, what zoo it came from all of a sudden, but it was in like a large aviary and <clears throat> it was hand raised. So I thought like, oh, it's a goose, no big deal. And that bird was, and still is many times of the year. It's so far, it seems to be a seasonal thing that we can't figure out, but it it is the pickiest bird. We, I don't know how many different produce items uh, ended up going for bugs a lot, but then the bugs became boring and then it was grapes and blueberries. Then it was uh, it, it, egg. And then now it's greens. It took the greens down. Then it wanted greens again. Like it just, it, it, it's kind of a pull your hair out. Or like saying, you, just, you just look at like what it is. Like it's a goose. It shouldn't be this <laughs> complicated. Uh, but some of our primates will be uh, picky from time to time. Uh, and they'll just go off things that they're used to eating and have no problem. And all of a sudden, they're just not. We try to have variety in the diet anyway. So it's not, we're not boring them every day with the same things but uh that sometimes they just all of a sudden want to have a you know dietary temper tantrum and, and not eat what you're eating but um, i'm trying to think of we don't have them now but we had sloth in the past sloths oh, yeah, and they're extremely picky mm. so they really wanted specific brows and we tried so hard to get them to eat things that are good for them so we showed you guys a lot of what we call nutritionally complete feeds which are like those dog biscuits but they make them for primates and flamingos too mm -hmm. so i mean we were doing everything under the sun to try and get these guys to eat a biscuit and so we ended up making a brownie with cooked sweet potatoes and ground biscuit put Yum. in and then we had to cut it we bought a special cutter to cut it like french fries so they could easily pick it up What's what's the easiest thing? The thing you just got like whatever leftovers. You got too much of this stuff. Just throw it in, throw it in this pet, and this uh, this thing will eat whatever you give it. That's not it's not the base diet for the animal, but the elephants are a good garbage disposal if we have to get rid of something or the hippos. Um, <laughs> hippos, so we, yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll eat pretty much anything uh, if it's well. They'll they'll be picky too. Like if 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 it's not for training, if it's just free feeding, they'll eat just about anything. But if you're mm -hmm. If you now, if you're getting, I want a specific behavior from you, then the uh, the costs of the item go way up in terms of like it has to be really special. Yeah, what's your what's your best value? If you're, you're you 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 have a zoo, you have a budget, you're figuring out. You're like koala bears. We can't not in the U.S. That's for the amount of money you got to pay to feed these things to have two koala bears. It just doesn't make sense. What's the best value? I like flamingos. Can you just fl feed a bunch of flamingos for real cheap and everyone's 
flamingos are like the crowd favorite and and uh it, and it doesn't cost you much to uh probably to the herbivores that could be maintained on hay alone so hay is one of the least expensive things that we purchase so the elephants eat a lot of hay but they eat a lot of it so they don't have a super inexpensive diet but on like mm. feeding an animal per kilogram body weight it's like what a penny a day or something like that mm -hmm. so that would be your best value would be a hay diet all right that's just in case i start a zoo one day i'm right. asking this. <laughs> or we're trying to save up you know switch to, switch to hay <laughs> yeah um so you guys were talking about the research is always being updated. You're finding out new things. Uh, new things are being published all of the time. You guys are publishing. Other zoos are publishing. I imagine for the most part, a lot of animals. You you get a uh, you know an elephant or um, a flamingo or um, a, you know a goat or whatever. There's there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of information that already exists out there. Do you guys get any animals out there that that it's some like very endangered species that maybe doesn't exist in many zoos or uh, or maybe you're the only zoo in the country that has it and you have to figure out what what it eats and what's the proper nutrition pretty much from scratch or do you always know about what the diet of a, um, a given mammal is going to be? Probably the closest to that would be some of the endangered reptiles. Mm. So there may be species that the zoo's bringing in to learn how to maintain in captivity, you know, either for reintroduction programs or, you know, building the genetic background or whatever. So there could be some lizards that could come in that no one else has ever had. Um, a lot of these guys tend to be insectivores, um, which are a challenge for many reasons. But um, really what comes to mind is just reptiles at this point. Yeah, I would say probably some um, reptile or amphibian species would be the the ones with the least information available. Um, sometimes some birds, like you go to look up and you won't find specific papers on that species. You may find papers on related species, so that's what you have to work with. Um, then you can you can also, if it's something you're really struggling with, um, the animal curator staff, they um, so from the husbandry standpoint, there may be a history with, oh, well, we've fed this species this, you know, it's um, sort of a... Uh, an experience-based evidence that may not be what it eats in the wild, but um, it's something to go off of. So we'll we'll work with what we have from the most closely related species if we don't have literature from that exact species. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing a couple of posters in the nutrition section there, and one one of them was talking a bit about um, you know vitamin E in, in amphibians, right? There's some sort of a powder that you would put on them, or is is maybe I'm not explaining it right? But generally, are you kind of always adding in new supplements, and and how does that work when maybe you're you know there are these animals that not are that aren't necessarily in their natural environment, but you're kind of needing to add different things in. Um, for those guys, we're really looking at a challenge with them has been vitamin A. I mean, vitamin, vitamin, e, is, okay. vitamin e is important as well, but we've been concentrating on vitamin A um, because several species of amphibians have suffered from vitamin A deficiency problems. And the way those manifest is it's called squamish metaplasia, but essentially like the cells on like your mucosal surfaces aren't quite right. So what happened is we noticed it when they couldn't use their tongues to catch crickets. Oh. So what they would do, instead of snapping their tongue out and grabbing something, they were having to eat it with their mouth. Hmm. And so then we lost some animals. And whenever we lose an animal, it's always an opportunity to learn something. You know, so we did lots of necropsy work with the veterinarians and sent tissues out. And it came out that it was a vitamin A deficiency. Um, and other collections were having the same problem. And this is um, some years back. And so we started trying to supplement more vitamin A. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so we have been concentrating on different ways of doing that um, for these guys. And luckily, we haven't had too many problems with that. Um, we haven't seen those same signs. Um, but still, we have some animals that don't thrive. And vitamin A is linked to a lot of things like, you know, immune system. You know, so some of the things might not be an outward sign of vitamin A deficiency, but it might be a vitamin A thing. So that's why we continue to work with that. But um, with dust and supplements, manufacturers come out with new products all the time. They don't always test them. You know, we're always the ones that kind of put the brakes on and be like, hey, let's test this first. Let's right. make sure it's safe. Um, some things like vitamin A, they're fat-soluble vitamins, so they can become toxic if you feed too much. So, you know, you don't want to go the other end. So, Do you, do you ever, uh, like, find yourself in a GNC and you're like, what do you guys got for alligators here? Like, how do you, how, how do you, how do you decide some of the, like what, what of these new supplements coming out is, uh, is worth experimenting with? Uh, we usually, so for, in terms of, uh, using supplements, our preference would be to not use them if we don't have to. So we're usually not out looking for supplements just to peruse them. Uh, they'll come up, they'll, we may have, um, Maybe the curatorial staff will request them that, hey, we're interested in this because they read it in one of their trade publications or something or, or another, their colleagues are using it. Um, so we'll often we find ourselves investigating it or it'll come up in the case of if an animal, like a blood test or some uh, vet clinical case comes up where a certain nutrient was deficient. And that and then we look at the diet and decide, oh, well, this this nutrient may not be where we want it to be in this diet. Um, and we we can't replace it with a different food item, whole food item. So then we would, so if there's a need for, we can't um, meet those needs with whole food items, uh, we would, well, we'll look into what supplements we can uh, get for them. And then it's, then we, then we're shopping around everywhere. We would include, you know, GNC anywhere where we can find, because it depends on the form, the cost, um, the form of the vitamin, as well as the product form, whether it's a powder or a capsule or something. So we, we would, um, at that point, yeah, look around uh, everywhere. And we're usually looking for suppliers that are going to be um, consistent, have good products that are willing to work with us, that are willing to share information about the product that they might not have on their label. Um, So that's part of the process, too. You guys must have to have so much stuff backed up in so many different variety, probably things that you almost never use, but just on hand in the rare event that you're going to need that's... one particular kind of food for when this one particular animal gets sick or whatever and you have these big freezers do you i mean i imagine um you're kind of saying that the the backup system is really important obviously if you have the freezer go out you're kind of you can't just like call dominoes to come and feed the zoo for you what have is what are coming some of the things that you need to do to be prepared for just every situation and how do you how do you track all that how much extra stuff do you have on it i mean is that no uh, i see what you're saying you know what I'm i hear what you're saying i mean one of the big things that we keep on hand that sometimes we end up throwing away is if we're going to have to hand rear an animal so if we know that we have an elephant birth coming up um, then we're going to be prepared for what if we have to hand rear this animal so we'll make sure that we have elephant milk replacer in stock hmm. so oh an elephant milk replacer is like a hundred dollars a bag so we'll definitely make sure we have at least one bag which isn't going to get you really far but it'll get you far enough to make an order once you actually have an animal in your hand raising them so we'll have lots of different types of milk replacers in our freezer to hit a variety of animals um, and that would also come with some bird formulas as, as well and we, and we generally keep a different variety of some frozen meats like and we'll like we'll go 
try to keep um, a container's worth of ground lamb or ground pork, ground beef, or just for if we get a picky carnivore that comes up. Um, and But all this stuff has a shelf life in the freezer, you know, no more than a year. So we're, we try not to keep a ton of stuff so we're not wasting, um, but we'd, um, we'd keep a few items that, that tend to be uh, reliable, novel items for different classes of animals like carnivores, fish eaters. Um, so we, we do try to keep different things. Now, as far as if your question about kind of like emergency preparedness, is that more what you were asking earlier about how would you, yeah, or if a disaster came, how would you yeah. be prepared for, uh, so that one's a little trickier because we can't just keep like a second food storage, food storage facility, um, across town. Uh, <laughs> the way that the zoo is planned for that is they would have a backup generator for our freezer. Mm-hmm. So we've had a few cases in the past where it's gone down and they bring up a backup generator and they put it in that big driveway and then they would hook that up to our freezers and our coolers. So it might not run everything in the building, but that's what our backup plan is. So, mm-hmm. and that can't happen. So, so we took a stroll through an immense series of refrigerators and freezers. You really can't stand in the freezer for more than a couple of seconds. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, what's the what's the most unusual meat or substance you have stored in that freezer? Because it looks like there are lots of different things stored there. Uh, I don't know what the most black unique. tea. Well, that yeah. was in the, oh, pan- the pantry. Oh, yeah, in the pantry. Oh, yeah, uh, in the freezer. You mentioned one picky eater. Uh, who, who had an appetite for ovaries? Is that right? Oh, well, she yeah. no, she didn't, it turns out. Uh, you know, we were, <laughs> we had a picky tiger at one point. It was um, sort of end of end of later years, you know, not doing, so part of that is they just, the older, older your old animals, like, you know, they just don't eat as well, period. But trying to um, feed them as best we can um, while we have them. Uh, we went out, so we exhausted all the items we'd normally stock. So we, at that point, you're just, well, what other meaty food items could we go out and get? So then we're, looking for obscure ethnic grocery stores that would have weird stuff that we hadn't already thought of. So we, and uh, for this particular tiger, remember one of the items that I remember having that we found like, well, why not? was a pork uterus. So, hmm. uh, but she didn't know she did. She didn't end up liking that. But it was, so you're just like, all right, I'm going to leave the zoo and just go for yeah, it. I'm going to go and load up. Find yeah. some strange That's usually the super uh, commissary supervisor's job to go do uh, this. You got to go to like the Chinese market or something yeah. like yep. that. That would be the place exactly. to go. I think we even had to do that for that sloth that one time, right? You had to go to like the weird grocery store to find some specific specific type of green or like, they were looking at, you know, well, in this island or they would, you know, it, ha- it, it needs to have this kind of green from this place. And you had to go out and find obscure green vegetables that... Hmm. Which weren't the magic bullet, but (laughs) how much of your job is just research, just sitting in front of the computer, you know, reading the latest publications, trying to figure out how to improve things as opposed to the actual like cooking and, and, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. I would say um, Adam and I have slightly different job descriptions, so his answer is going to be a little different from mine. Um, Neither one of us prepare diets, so basically we just get them all formulated, we talk to the curators, the veterinarians about them, and then we work with our operational staff and they do all the preparation. So we would help out in a pinch in preparing stuff, but in general the actual preparing the diets is not very much unless we're doing a lot of diet changes, and one of the problems with being far ahead down there when we have feeds made ahead of time is if we change the diet, we got to fix the feeds that are already made. Mm-hmm. So there we might do a little stuff. Um, but then as far as like reading papers and researching the diets with all the other things that we do, I would say for me, probably 25% of my time. Hmm. I feel like mine's a couple hours a week. I mean, in my case, it would only... 
uh, for, I, I do a lot of the quarantine incoming animals. So a lot of those are like Ann was saying earlier, she kind of feels like she's still in grad school and I very much do too. Um, that's the nice thing about this job is you're always learning. There's all, there's so much to learn. Um, there's so much unknown that you're, and you're constantly, we're getting new species, which is part of what makes the job fun too, is there's always something new coming in that you get to learn about. And so part of that would be learning like, well, what does this one eat? And you kind of have an idea, but you look, you're in the course of preparing for an incoming species we don't already have. I'm looking up feeding ecology papers, weights, um, just the things about the animal that uh, would influence what kind of diet. So if, it, if it's something we don't, if it's a species we don't have, then we're not transitioning it to our diet. We're, we're having to make up the diet. What are we, go, what are, are going to be our Fort Worth Zoo diet for the species? So, and part of the decision process then is looking up what it eats and then trying to adapt that in captivity. Um, so that, that part, I would be looking at journal articles and reading up papers. And sometimes you can get yourself into some rabbit holes and, and that, and, so I, and looking up, uh, let's say a different lizard, I might look, look up, uh, find the papers for what it eats. And then that might lead to, oh, well, it eats these kind of bugs. I might then start going to look at what papers I can find on nutrient composition of related insect species and that, so it just kind of branch off from itself. And, but you have to, you're kind of always reined in from that by the day to day. Like we need to address this, this animal isn't eating, you know, we need to add this, change this diet, but uh, it is definitely a significant part of our, our job. Some of the um, projects that I get involved in with working with the lab staff and some of the animal staff would be like, um, that require a lot of research too with reading is like doing literature searches on say like biotin. So our elephant staff um, and our veterinarians wanted to supplement our animals with biotin because they were saying, oh, you know, they've got some foot problems and we've heard anecdotally this works. Why can't we just do this? And it's like, well, you know, it's like $2,000 a bag. So if we're going to do this, let's make sure that it's for a good reason. So we talked about, you know, how are we going to follow up on it? And we looked at you know, we read all the information on biotin and we had to find a lab that would do it. And we actually ended up working with some human researchers in the medical field looking at biotin deficiency in pregnant women, you know, and they were the ones that have like are doing the most lab work. So they came out here. We had to read all their papers on what they were doing. Then we had to read up on biotin metabolism. We're not experts on every nutrient. I mean, we're kind of like a jack of all trades, really, because mm -hmm. we have all these different animals, all these different nutrients. Um, so we do a lot of reading up on projects like that working with the researchers, setting them up, coming up with ways to monitor them. So some of it is project related and some of it is diet formulation related. With, with all of the things, uh, I mean, I, I know there's nutritionist programs everywhere. How do you become a zoo nutritionist? As you just mentioned, there's a whole load of different creatures and different diets that you need to put together. Where do you get this education? What's your What's your background? How did you get uh, How did you get interested in this in the first place? You know, I always loved animals, and I wanted to work in a zoo from being like in grammar school. Mm -hmm. um, I did not even know zoo nutritionists existed until I was almost out of college, hmm. because there were only five. Yeah, there were only there five were only five zoo nutritionists. Yes, there are only five zoo nutritionists. So what, what do you mean in the world? In the in the country? in the in North America. Okay. Wow. U.S. and Canada. Oh, there are this, only five. This is, if, if I can stop you for a second, I, mm -hmm. I think, didn't you say Fort Worth is, is one of the only zoos with a nutrition department? There are 21 zoos with nutritionists. 21 now. 21 okay. total. So I must have misheard something. No, actually, we were talking about the lab. So there's only oh, four yeah, the, zoos that have a the, nutrition lab. The nutrition lab. lab. Yes. Okay, okay. That's and then our lab has an HPLC, which nobody has. Yes. That's Very fancy. Cool. Okay, so there was only five zoo nutritionists. Yes. And so you just... So I met one and I'm like, that is like the coolest job. 
that is definitely what I want to do. And so then I just set a goal that that is what I was going to do. And they were like, oh, I'm glad you're here. We're very busy. There is only five of us. We've got 7,000 animals to feed. <laughs> yeah. So basically what I did is I got an undergraduate degree in animal science at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Um, and then I worked as actually a primate keeper. And then I went to graduate school back at the U of I, and I got a nutritional sciences degree. And I did my research with uh, domestic cattle and sheep, and then I compared them to zoo ruminants, meaning like um, bantang, buffalo, eland, orcs. Um, so I did studies with that. And then when I finished grad school, I became the first um, nutrition resident. So at the Brookfield Zoo, the nutritionist there set up a residency program, and I was a resident for two and a half years. And then in 1993, I came here. Hmm. I've been here ever since. Amazing. And Adam? Uh, so my background, uh, I've always loved animals too since I was a little boy and uh, always envisioned myself working in a zoo too. But I, um, and I always thought as a little kid, like I was going to be a zookeeper. And I even had this picture like I was going to work at the Milwaukee Zoo because we lived in Wisconsin at the time. And I was going to drive a Jeep and it was going to have a rhino keychain, like all these details like planned out. <laughs> and, uh, and then... A uh, rhino keychain. <laughs> yep. You were that was my favorite animal. Yep. About a rhino keychain. Well, that was part we of the package. Yeah. yeah. Part, part of the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, so... Wow. Uh, went on and you know did all my school and everything and by the time and the animal thing was always in the background always but it was and I didn't really pursue it um, going into college I didn't know what I wanted to do I settled on nutrition um, was personally interested in it and I figured it was as good a thing as any to pick a major um, so I ended up uh, doing human nutrition um, nutritional science and um, at the time just for job security made sure I got um, the right curriculum to become a registered registered dietitian so that I pursued human nutrition all the way to that and including my master's degree was also in human nutrition. And then, then I worked as a registered dietitian for um, four years um, in Illinois, Chicago. And during that time, uh, I kind of became a little bored with it. And I just wasn't finding my niche in human nutrition. Like every dietitian has a book and they all have some version of their own, the same diet when you boil it all down. And I just wasn't sure what my niche was going to be and where. And in the course of that, kind of just like soul searching, um, had made some contacts uh, in the Fort Worth Zoo uh, in the lab, actually. Um, when I did an internship in Fossil Rim, also here in Texas, one summer, they had some really cool internship opportunities. And I was able to be an intern for black rhinos for three months, which is my favorite animal. And um, that taught me, that was good because it taught me I did not want to do the husbandry. I didn't want to be an animal keeper. So I was like, okay, well, I can cross that off. Um, but then I, I still want to do something with animals. But I thought, well, I got nutrition, I got animals. Can I merge the two together? So I reached out to the contact I had here, and she's like, oh, we'll get some more internships. And I looked online, and like uh, eight weeks later, this residency here popped up. And it was just, you know, made to order, and I applied for it and um, was very fortunate to, to get the opportunity to come here and, and train. So I, I made the bridge from human nutrition to uh, zoo nutrition, and I've, I, there's no turning back. I love it. It's my dream job. That's amazing. Wow. I mean, to, uh, very few people uh, actually, I mean, Probably every little kid, at, at least at some point, goes like, I think I want to be a zookeeper True. when I grow up. Yeah. Very, very few stick with that plan. That's amazing. Is it? Is it one, once you do become an adult, is it a, is a, <laughs> it a fairly competitive field? I would still think there would be quite a few people wanting to work for zoos. How, as far as the nutrition part goes, I still think there's a lot of folks that aren't aware of the field of zoo mm. nutrition. So we work really hard to make that more out there. Um, we take a lot of students. We take undergraduate students, graduate students, uh, postgraduate students um, to try and help with that goal. Um, but in general, 
there's not a lot of zoo nutrition jobs. Hmm. So like Adam said, he was really smart in getting his RD so that if a nutrition job in a zoo wasn't there right available, he had another option. So some folks just don't want to go down that road unless they know for sure they're going to have a job. You guys must be making some kind of new discoveries and new findings all of the time, right? If it's if it's a fairly new, if it wasn't that long ago that there was only five zoo nutritionists in the country, there, there you must be... Um, putting out new publications quite a bit, right? Or how often does that happen? Uh, we do prepare for, we have a every other year nutrition conference. Mm -hmm. So we always have something to present at that. So we share at that point. Um, and when you say like new discoveries, it's it's funny because they don't always think about it that way. But when you're monitoring something and you've recorded something and you said, okay, well, I know that this can support this animal. It's like, well, I didn't know that yesterday. Hmm. You know, so I think it's might seem like small things, but it's stuff that you just, didn't know before so mm -hmm. and it seems like so much is like at, at stake too actually in the nutrition it's so important to be taking beautiful i mean i was just i was almost moved to tears by like how beautiful the the meals are and the thought and the process like i guess animals live longer and they are healthier it does not even change the 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 public's concept of a zoo you know it seems like a happier place and, and a good research i mean do you know what i'm saying what are yes, like it should be. have you have you have you been having those conversations with people and do you feel like it could change public perspectives and attitudes towards zoos and and these projects actually we did have a case this year with a tour group from the local university came through and they were like, like first year nutrition students so they were really not or uh, i think they actually un undeclared so they just they were taking like a survey nutrition course and uh, one of them, they gave us feedback, which I don't usually get, but we got like sort of their thoughts after the tour. And one of them said that she really did not like zoos coming in here because she had heard, you know, like they're mean to animals and the animals are trapped in tiny cages. And, and so she had a very negative attitude. But when she left after seeing the, and this is just a nutrition tour, it totally changed her mind. She saw that there is a lot of love and um, thought and care that goes in these animals. And we really are giving them the best uh, care we can in for a captivity setting. And there's, you know, the, the, it's not necessarily a lot, a much easier life out in the wild. You know, they're, um, the whole reason we have these animals in zoos, a lot, a lot of it is for conservation and to help protect and preserve these species. Uh, that's one reason that I'm so interested in, in them and passionate for, uh, about them is, is all the good they do do for animals, for these species. Um, because there, there's a tough world out there with poachers and wildlife trafficking, all kinds of stuff. So we're, we really are trying to propagate and preserve these precious animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like they have it pretty good. There's uh, there's so many things with a zoo setting too that it seems like that, that you could learn um, about the natural world because you have these kind of, it's so much more controlled, the studies that you could do. If you have, say, do you find that in a given species that there's a lot of individual differences in terms of, so, so you're feeding um, all of the eels this one diet, all of the time uh are there individual oh, differences yeah. in how so so all these individuals can be eating the exact same thing and like basically the exact same quantity every day and still end up being one weighing a lot more than another and being a lot of individual health differences i mean for efficiency it'd be great to have one standard diet and everybody's on it so right. we usually start off that way and then somebody doesn't want to eat part of it yeah. or somebody for some reason is less active so they gain weight on it um, or something becomes two animals are together and they're one's out competing the other one so we need to change up the diet to make it work for a group of animals um, but it, it's very rare that 
there'd be one goose diet for every goose in the zoo. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do have some standard waterfowl diets, you yeah. know, where most of the waterfowl are getting a, a, a similar mix. Um, but in general, um, no, there's a lot of individual variability. But even even within, yes, I mean, it, it is theoretical that you could have three or four animals all eating the same exact diet, but then the outcome is different in terms of body weight, body shape, because they're much like people, you have individual metabolisms, and we, we're not to the point of being able to measure all those, you know, that would be fantastic if we could, but that is, uh, there's uh, incredible individual variability, even like some of the elephant body conditioning work we've been doing, uh, it's, that was one of our, sort of the biggest surprises was the, sh- the unique uh, spectrum of elephant body shapes and you would think an elephant is an elephant you know they have like an elephant shape but there's actually quite and that makes it challenging to score them because if you're trying to develop um, a visual tool for okay here's what you know a uh, you know a low low condition elephant up to a high condition elephant and you try to provide some representative pictures well when you've got that much variability in shape it's harder to boil it down to two or three representative pictures for a given score category because you've got uh, we found like well, one thing was interesting. We found that for the taller elephants, the long legs was um, was we were biasing the score to make to to score them as leaner because of the long legs. Like the trick you know, with your eye, sort of like you know the stripes thing when you're tall. So mm-hmm. if we cropped off the legs in the photo, we scored the body differently by a score or two. So removing that that bias aspect. So it huh. anyway, we were we were really intrigued by the fact of there's so much variability. Just and that's just one example of species. Hmm. To be clear, there are no like, there's no way to weigh an elephant. Oh yeah, right? you can. Mm-hmm. Oh, we, we, do you, do we, you have we, scales? Oh yeah, yes. ours are weighed. Yes, there's some heavy duty scales. Yes, seriously. Mm-hmm. Many of the animals in the zoo are weighed. We're really lucky here that most and, of ours are weighed. And how about salty? No, he's not weighed. No, <laughs> salty is the um, alligator, right? The uh, saltwater crocodile. Saltwater crocodile. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Alligator yeah. and crocodile. I always screw those. We have up. alligator Dan. So we've got, yes. we do have a big alligator. Oh, I yes. forgot about alligator. Alligator Dan. Dan is down in Texas wild and salty's over in Mola. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so it, it sounds like probably the hardest part of your job is when animals get sick and getting, getting these things healthy again. And, and uh, I'm sure it's every case is very different. Um, what is, What's the hardest uh, animal out there to get to take its medicine? Primates can be very tough, uh, and elephants. The smarter they are, the more difficult it is because because they're smart and they can figure it out. So they can taste, like they can sift through and feel. Okay, here's a pill, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they'll spit that part out. Uh, if it's if it's like a gritty texture, uh, some of the funny things with primates is. Uh, we will occasionally use baby food, like um, as a vector, like you know, pureed, not meat baby food, but like vegetable or fruit baby food. And there are some of them that are so smart they they need to hear the pop, like when you open a fresh can, <laughs> to know that it's it's not been tampered not with. Been tampered oh with. My so gosh. if you just unscrew it, they won't take <laughs> what it. What a bunch of jerks! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we had to find some brand of like a plastic, like the seal top, so it would pop each time you opened no it. No way! So yes, we had to, wow. we had to try to get to outsmart Ooh. them. Yeah, and then for the elephants... <laughs> this is a constant mystery. Oh, yeah. it, it's, I'm telling you, it's exciting every day. And uh-huh. for the elephants, they're extremely suspicious. So if somebody's getting something, if everybody's not getting it, they're just not going to take it. So whatever you're using as a vector for one, like everybody's got to get some too. That's wow. just... So That's they've, they've been... Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> 
It's it's I mean, what, why, why the suspicion? They've just they've been living their whole life in the spa, being um, hand fed basically every day with special treatment. They're still like, I don't know. Or maybe they're just it. working it, right? Yeah, yeah, for the, for the better. <laughs> Extra yeah, yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's just new things. Like so, even if you're not medicating them, if you introduce something new, if they get used to routine or some of the same items, because we while we try to have variety in the diets, we don't purposely change them up all that often just it creates extra work um so if a diet's kind of working for an animal we just sort of leave it until there's a reason to change it um so sometimes it's the fact that you're introducing something new that's like what is this like i've mm-hmm. never i haven't seen this before what do i do with this and so there might be a long period where they warm up to it or so but in the case of like medicating an animal you want you want acceptance right now mm-hmm. so um it's that that yeah that, i think it may just be the novelty some of them don't aren't as uh, appreciative of new things because well, i know i know cats and dogs are usually dogs are much easier to slip oh, yeah, a little yeah. pill than <laughs> than a cat is and and dogs a lot of people would say are quote unquote smarter whatever that whatever in the world that even means but um it's my understanding that that because dogs um are so um kind of olfactory oriented that you can just like put a bit of gravy on something they'll gobble it all up before they even know what uh, what was going down their throat whereas cats are just tend to be a lot more suspicious and investigate things um a, a, a lot more so is it so there must be just so many um uh, so many just differences in the way in which um in which different mammals taste things and i'm and sure that's perceive part of it yeah. food. Mm-hmm. Right? definitely because we're usually looking for flavors and lots of times the staff are thinking well what do i like and actually, when I was in graduate school, one of my office mates was doing his thesis on flavors for cows. So he had like sweet, salty, and vinegar. And the flavor that the cows picked hands down every time was vinegar. But yet, you know, when we're medicating hoofstock animals, the keepers are like, oh, let's try applesauce. You know, let's try some molasses and all these other things. So yeah, you know, I think there are differences and we don't know all of those. Hmm. Do you ever find, I mean, sometimes the animals are just blue or they're hormonal or they, they don't want to eat. Are you ever, you know, prescribing them exercise or sort of workouts or something that isn't necessarily a food or do they get moody and it's just, it's not necessarily a question of a deficiency. It's just a, a temperament thing. We definitely work with the staff to keep the animals active. You know, we want them to exhibit natural behaviors. Um, so we might make the diet, but they need to put it out there in such a way that the animals are foraging naturally to get it. So there, there is that. Um, as far as like moody, I would say a challenge that comes up, it's not really moody, but with our black bears. So we have two black bears and they have seasonal changes. No matter what we feed them, they're going to exhibit these seasonal changes. Well, they go through periods where um, the female right now is thinking, oh, well, maybe I'm going to hibernate. So I'm just going to pig out and I want all of the food. And the male's like, well, he doesn't typically hibernate this time of the year, so he's not as big into it, but he doesn't want to let her have his food. So they, they can get very aggressive. And so then the keepers might be like, oh, we need to feed them more. But if we feed them more, they can get overweight. So we get challenged with saying, hey, we need diluted diets. You know, what can we feed them that's lower calorie? You know, how can the keepers feed them differently? You know, and so we have a little project going on where we're looking at, you know, what would they eat naturally, seasonally? And, and the foods that we have here to offer oftentimes really aren't at all like their natural diets. I mean, like a huge misconception is, I mean, fruits. So really, when you look at the nutrient content of wild fruits, it's more like our vegetables than like fruits. So we end up recommending a lot of vegetables for animals that are considered frugivorous, you know, so we have to work with the keepers on stuff like that. Um, But yeah, I would say, so the the blackbirds get kind of frustrated and angry 
and aggressive if they don't get enough food. So we get challenged with that sometimes. Mm-hmm. But to your to your question, like the, about mm-hmm. behavior, I've not, having dealt with a lot of quarantine animals lately, um, I've noticed one thing I've been, um, become to appreciate is that um, if an animal's not eating, it's not always because of the food. And so, um, like in quarantine, is usually a stressful. The animal's brought in to a new zoo, has to go through a quarantine period, so it's in an isolated space. It's not with other animals of its kind or in a, you know, they often move out to an exhibit where they have more space for them. So they, they feel like they're in course. I mean, we don't really know what they're feeling, but um, there's a lot going on and changing them. So um, sometimes we, we do have some staff, like we have a behaviorist, you know, who can contribute and we can consult them. We'll um, like for birds, if they're not eating, uh, I've, I've really learned it may not be the food. So we'll look at things like how is the diet presented? Um, what is the lighting? What is the temperature? We had an iguana that wasn't eating uh, when it came in and it was just as simple as turning up the heat lamp, like 10 degrees and all of a sudden it started eating. So there's a lot of things that can, um, uh, did you give it enough of a hide box so that it feels like it is a place to retreat to? So there's, there's all kinds of different husbandry factors. So that's why we work really closely with the vet staff and the animal care staff to when the animal is not eating like it's normal, we want to make sure we're assessing all the different things that could be playing into that. So not just throwing more food at it. Mm-hmm. Are, are there you you talked about you know black bears being a challenge and you're you're viewing a lot of these uh these these issues as a as a challenge is is that how it feels all of the time with your job or is there are there any animals out there that you just get annoyed with like <laughs> day in and day out these these darn gophers that you gotta every time you gotta take the grain and then you gotta rub some leaves on it you gotta shake it four times and then you gotta whisper a secret into it i don't know how it knows that you whispered a secret into it do you ever do you ever do you ever are there any animals that you're just fed up with with, with their uh with how finicky they are or whatever divas yeah or or is it or or are those the fun ones for you? Uh, some of them get really annoying. Like you just when you when it's especially the ones that are like back and forth. Like there's some that like increase, decrease, increase, decrease, increase, decrease, and it uh, it could be every couple of weeks. Um, and so some of those get annoying. Uh, some of them are fun from a challenge standpoint. Like I, I enjoy the fact that having to get around problems is a challenge, and um, it, you like to think that you're trying to provide the animal what it's really asking for because that's. You know, having been um, as a, a dietitian, like I have the luxury of, I, you know, people, you can ask them questions and they can give you answers. So it's easier with animals. They can't tell you what they're thinking. So you're, you, you, you lose that whole aspect of, of the interview of the, of the person to figure out, to help figure out what they, what they need and want to eat. So it, some of them get annoying, but some of them are kind of fun, you know, that uh, just, I think it depends. I don't know if Anne has you know, any different experiences or. Probably mostly when they're in quarantine and they're not eating stuff and you're just trying time at you know several different things um that can get kind of old um probably in a different way a challenging would be um our sheep we have three sheep that are grossly obese we've been doing everything we can so that they don't gain weight and they keep gaining weight and every week like oh they're still gaining weight decrease the diet oh we keep decreasing the diet so um sometimes that gets challenging though i would say the last weight they finally did lose some weight so i think we're on the road to recovery there some of it is with the seasonal changes and keeping up with the animals to make sure that they don't go over or under can be a challenge. Um, sometimes that depends on when our feeds come in. If they're coming in at a higher fat content, then Adam will look at all the diets it affects and figure out you know, what we need to do. So that requires a lot of follow-up. Um, so there's things that are a lot of follow-up, but I can't think off the top of my head on them. And in terms of food, I we I saw a Vitamix in um, in in that in the nutrition lab. There does are what is like the strangest prep 
like preparations you have. You talked about steaming vegetables and blending things. Are there any really kind of top five like strange cakes or creations that you've made for the animals? We have a fish gel we make for our spoonbills. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's it, a great yeah. answer. Uh, that was that was sort that of that was so quick too. Yeah. By the way, we also well, we can get to pinky slurry too. Um, yeah, pinky slurry is a uh, fun one. Throwing baby mice in a in the little Vitamix and with some calcium and vitamin powder and a little Two bit of oil snakes, sometimes and sick animals. Whip it all up. We had or like these hammer cop chicks. We were hand feed. That was part of their hand reading formula when they weren't eating well initially. Uh, and so that got every week. I'd have to make fresh pinky slurry and uh <laughs> broke the blade on, or broke the motor on one of them so we had to get a new one and uh, so you're like you're working with like tiny amounts trying to like grind up into like a nice even smooth liquid but you don't want to make a ton you don't need a ton so that was one of the challenges but anyway this the spoonbill gel so the fish gel they uh, can i just yes. uh, real quick before you go into that did you did you ever try to call like the blender people and talk no, like this no. motor keeps on breaking i well what are you putting in there and then no. you have to explain <laughs> I guess uh, if we were really on a budget, that we would, had to. But if you need, let me know. I'll okay. make that call for okay. you. Right. We'll record it. It'll be terrific. All we, right. We do have one special blender in the lab, yeah. which is like a seven thousand dollar blender for blending up like frozen meat and stuff. So when we were having some problems, we um, shifted it down to the nutrition building, um, and we got a new one for the lab. But yeah, the, the equipment to take care of these kinds of things can be quite expensive and. But sometimes those little Nutri blenders, I mean, they work better because of their smaller size. You might blow through some of them, but overall, cost wise, it ends up working out okay. Um, Adam, I cut you off right when oh, you were. Uh, spoonbill uh, gel. Oh, the spoonbill fish gel, yeah. So we, uh, several years ago, our diet used to be like a meat based diet, like a ground meat based with pellets in there. They won't eat the, they just won't eat pellets well by themselves. Um, it's not something they would eat in the wild, um, they wouldn't eat grain. But um, so they their diet was mostly that with some fish. We don't want to, We didn't want to feed entirely a fish diet because there's some nutrient potential nutrient deficiencies that can come with that. So we uh, had an issue with thinking that the meat based diet um, or the curators thought that the meat based diet was leading to a decline in their birds weatherproofing of their feathers just from like the greasiness of it. So they were looking to replace the meat. But then we we're trying. We were struggling with well, if we have if they if we can't feed them the meat, they won't eat pellets by themselves. And they'll just eat the fish. What are we gonna? What other item can we add in there that would be more nutri- um, nutrient dense and fortified? So at that time, our one of our main feed companies had come out with a, a fish analog gel. So basically, it's a like a gelatin, like a, a um, gelatinizes, but it's made from fish meal. So it uh, and it's it's fortified then with vitamins. So it would be considered a complete diet by itself. So we began experimenting with different recipes of that. We made it just the way that it was, and they really didn't go for it too well. And then we added in. Uh, or they, they did eat it, but then we found that it wasn't enough. We were trying to get some of the birds to um, eat enough where we thought like it was meeting their needs. So we had to we ended up fortifying with some oil, and then later added canthus, like the red pigment that they get to help boost the coloring. And um, so we had to we ended up making this gel, and then then we they were wasting the pellets. So we decided, well, why not just grind the pellets and mix those into the gel also at the same time and reduce the waste of the pellets. So we it's a recipe evolved over time, but that's kind of a fun. I think it was fun, but it. Thing to a recipe to have come up with and to have had several versions of it and and they're eating it very well. We've had uh, two successful clutches uh, or maybe three the last couple of years of spoonbill babies. Um, we are some of the ones are younger, so they're coming up, but um, so they're reproducing and doing very well. So that's kind of a success story. With you could publish a cookbook one day. We could. <laughs> we have a lot of gel based diets. So the gel the gel diet that thing works really well for certain animals that'll eat it. 
um, because you can stick a lot of stuff in there um, depending how if the animal will go for that texture. What's the grossest thing, the thing that you just like can't stand uh, touch sod, it like sod bones the smell of sod bones that's sod that's bones it's like burnt flesh you know that hair, burnt hair smell oh yeah that's... so we'll saw bones into different sizes so that we can uh standardize the size and also um have different size options for different size uh, carnivores that would use bones so and we have to we have a big bandsaw to allow us to do that but so we once a month we'll schedule someone to do that to replenish our stocks so we always have we try to maintain an inventory of so many of each size so someone has to do that. So then it just the kitchen permeates with that odor yeah. for the day. And what do you? Who's doing that? You, you like not ha- me? Hazen okay. the new guy with <laughs> no, the, no, no. We the have bone staff. Saw? The staff that are trained to safely use the saw would be okay. kind of probably the next runner up would be going back to that fish gel. I mean, yeah. it's I don't mind. Smells it. not very good. <laughs> <laughs> and even Adam's been dipping into the fish it, gel. It, no it is his looking. own recipe. Yeah, so I he's probably kind of biased. That's amazing. Uh, sawed guinea pigs, though, like the interior, like so the guts. When we saw, we've had to saw a guinea pig for some carnivore. Uh, actually, one of the cheetahs wouldn't eat a whole, but if we gave her like parts of a guinea pig, she'd eat a half a guinea pig. So when you cut through their GI tract, like you're getting all the, the poop and stuff that's still in the guinea pig. So that, that kind of smells terrible, too. What's the... <laughs> what, what's been something that's really surprising? Like, uh, so there's this... Uh, uh, is anything into the intermittent fat uh, fasting? Is that the, that is that a fad going around this? No, no. it's a uh, you know it's it's taken off in in uh, human culture, and the idea is you know we actually evolved. Often we weren't eating every day, so your body was actually used to sometimes going with that. Was there anything? And so that's like a counterintuitive whether whether or not it is good for you. Was, uh, but but the point I'm trying to make is there anything um, that's happened along the way that was just very surprising to you some counterintuitive thing that you would have never thought that ended up being really good for some species i'm not sure about that but when you talk about the intermittent fasting i Mm -hmm. mean certainly a lot of our big carnivores would eat large prey and then not eat for several days Um, so sometimes you'll get well let's just give them a fast day and it's like well that's not really letting them do what they would naturally do so Mm -hmm. definitely we have and other zoos have too well we haven't just we're working in that direction is offering more of these large carcasses and so then that would replace days, they would go several days without eating if that's what we're going to feed. So that's trying to get back to more of their natural ecology, um, but it's not always easy to get a source of these carcasses. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe there, are there biases with how animals should look like? Uh, Dumbo should be fat and chunky and fun. Is, is that true? Or sometimes they actually in the wild are kind of slender uh, and look a different way? Seasonally, it can change. So if you saw a picture of a free-ranging lactating elephant, it might almost look like a skeleton. But I mean, that's kind of what happens to them. So we don't go that far here. But definitely, there is a preconception with a lot of the public that the animals looking rounder is more natural when that really isn't the case. Um, So uh, that's definitely a challenge. Um, And we talked a little bit about body condition scoring. And again, that's like you can't apply it across every single animal because they have different body structures. So like our jaguars are a stockier cat than say the tigers. So when you're scoring them, you have to keep in mind their body shape and not just go, oh, well, this is how a tiger should look. So this jaguar, you know, is, you know, too skinny or something like that. You actually have to know, know your animals. So you end up developing mm-hmm. like an individual scale for each species. If you right. have, and that takes time. So we don't, a lot of those don't exist, but 
and they make great projects for interns and, and um, things. So, but uh, we all, all of our uh, fellow zoo nutritionists, we all help each other out. We have a website where we can share these kind of resources of, Hey, I developed a scale for this. Like, Oh, I have a scale for that. And we can trade. And so there's a lot of, um, we, 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 yeah, we definitely rely on our colleagues. Like Ants mentioned earlier, none of, no one of us is an expert in everything. So some of us, depending where our background was from, like we have uh, one of the nutritionists that's um, her background was in avian science. So I may turn to her with like, Hey, there's this different poultry, there's different bird food. Can you help me, um, you know, figure out what the energy content of this would be if it's not easy for me to figure out so we can kind of turn to each other for different things that we know our colleagues specialize in. Hmm. Well, I want to make sure we plug the heck out of the zoo. This has been an absolutely amazing day. I can't wow. wait to record the rest. And please make sure to go to fortworthzoo.org. And thank you, Ann Ward and Adam Reppert, for joining us today. Thank you, Sophia, for doing a wonderful job co-hosting. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the podcast, talking with Shara Gabriel in Buffalo, New York, and talking about TV. Should you be watching this stuff? Is TV dangerous? Are we all addicted to it? Is it ruining our lives? Is it bettering our lives? Really interesting uh, takes, especially for those of you that uh, are, are like me and, and enjoy some TV from time to time and, and maybe beat yourself up about it a little too much. You might, you might hear some, uh, some relieving uh, studies, so maybe you don't have to fret as much. Really cool, interesting takes, cool conversation, super fun guest. Make sure and check that out. Again, go to shanemoss.com for all sorts of tour dates coming up, and you can always go to uh, join my email list, put in your zip code, and we'll know when we're in your area. We can send you an email so you don't need to keep checking back as often. You can check me out on Patreon. I uh, haven't, haven't put much stuff up on there in a while, but if you're just looking to contribute to what I'm doing, I've been um, adding a whole bunch more. If you're wondering what, what uh, uh, the Patreon goes to supporting, I, I just recently hired a, um, a social media um, consultant and uh, someone who's going to be helping fill uh, some of the shows better and increase my online presence and that sort of thing. I, I've been reluctantly getting back into the social media stuff. I, I, I took kind of a couple years off from posting things and and now I'm trying to get back into the Instagram, not back into it, into it for the first time and all that. So you can check out my Instagram, Shane Moss Comedy. And if you're into audiobooks, Libro.fm is a great way of supporting your indie bookstore. All of the audiobooks for the same price as any other company, but they get downloaded through your local independent bookstore and the profits get split with them. Audiobooks are fantastic. They're basically uh, the majority of the um, reading that I do these days because I spend so much time in a car, um, which I which I absolutely love, just like a nice couple hour drive listening to an audiobook and 
making some voice notes and it helps me think of a lot of material and come up with um, fun interesting things to share with you guys and so yeah get into it um, I, I know not not everyone likes to sit down at the end of the night or has time um, to crack open the book so audiobooks are a really great way to supplement getting new knowledge into your brain offer code here we are to get three months for the price of one and that goes that first um that first month goes to me goes to supporting here we are podcast and lots more exciting stuff coming up this year
Star Brands Audio, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.